Welcome to episode 16 of The Quantified Body. I'm Damien Blenkinsop, and today's subject is cancer. It affects all of us. When we think about death, cancer is often what we think of first. If you're like me, most, if not all of the deaths affecting you personally in your life may have been due to cancer. In my case, my grandfather from stomach cancer and an auntie from a brain tumor. And then in June 2011, I was told I possibly had a brain tumor myself. Fortunately, it turned out that that diagnosis was wrong, but it brought the subject even closer to me in an unforgettable way. The other aspect of cancer that makes it so devastating is that its mechanisms, how it works, where it comes from, how we could treat it effectively, how we can track its development, assess our risk and avoid it, continue to elude us. That makes us feel powerless against it. In comparison with heart disease, for example, there are many effective strategies and tactics today we can take to avoid and treat it. There are specific biomarkers we can track to understand our risk. That empowers us, and we'll look at those in future episodes. The question is, though, can we empower ourselves against cancer like that? Today's episode is about the theory that mitochondrial damage is behind cancer and how this theory may let us take control of cancer. In today's guest words, all cancers can be linked to impaired mitochondrial function and energy metabolism. So we've already seen how important our mitochondria and keeping them healthy is in previous episodes looking at longevity and aging with Aubrey de Grey and autoimmune diseases with Terry Walls. Today we add to that list the role they may be playing in the cancer disease process. Today's guest, Dr. Thomas Seyfried, is Professor of Biology at Boston College, where he leads a research program focused on the mechanisms by which metabolic therapy manages chronic disease and cancer. He sits on the editorial boards of four research journals and has over 60 published papers on cancer and metabolism. He is the author of the review paper, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, appearing in the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism in 2010, and of the textbook in 2012 entitled Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, on the origin, management, and prevention of cancer. He is a frequent lecturer and speaker at conferences on the topic of cancer, impaired mitochondrial function, and using ketogenic diets and fasting tactics as therapy to treat and avoid cancer. This was personally an important episode for me. I hope you feel more in control of your cancer risk after listening to it, as I do having followed Dr. Seyfried's work. To get the show notes, the interview transcript, and links to all the references from today's episode, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick out the episode from the list there. If you want to get the show notes directly in your email inbox, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, put your email in there, and you'll get them every time an episode comes out. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Thomas, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'd like to start off with basically kind of an overview because you are putting for a different theory of cancer compared to that that has been the reigning theory for a very long time now. Could you describe the differences between the two theories and what is the basis for your new theory? Well, it's not that my theory is new. The theory was initiated in the early part of the last century, in the 1920s uh, through the 30s and 40s by Otto Warburg, the distinguished uh, German scientist and biochemist. It was Warburg who found that all tumor cells continue to ferment glucose in the presence of oxygen. Uh, put it this way, lactic acid fermentation. This is a very unusual condition that usually happens only when oxygen is not present. But to ferment in the presence of oxygen is a very, very unusual biochemical uh, condition. Warburg said, with his extensive amounts of data, that the reason why tumor cells do this is because their respiration is defective. So in our normal bodies, most of our cells generate energy through respiration, which is oxidative phosphorylation, and we generate ATP this way. But cancer cells of all types of tumors and all cells within tumors generally have a much higher level of fermentation than the normal cells. 
And this then became the signature biochemical defect in tumor cells. And Warburg wrote extensively on this phenomenon and presented massive amounts of data, he and a number of other investigators. But what happened after Watson and Crick's discovery of the structure of DNA and the findings that genetic mutations and DNA damage were in tumor cells and the enormous implications of understanding DNA as the genetic material, this just sent the whole field off into a, a quest to understand the genetic damage in tumor cells. And it gradually became clear to many people that cancer uh, was a genetic disease rather than a mitochondrial metabolic disease as Warburg had originally showed. Right. So when you were talking about the energy and respiration of the cells just a minute ago, that was actually, in fact, the mitochondrial respiration and energy generation from mitochondria within cells. That's correct. That's correct. It's a mitochondrial. It's an organelle within uh, all of our cells, so the majority of our cells. Erythrocytes have no mitochondria, so they ferment. But the mitochondria are the organelle that uh, dictates uh, cellular homeostasis and functionality and uh, provides health and vitality to cells in our organisms and ultimately our entire body. And when these organelles become damaged, defective or insufficient in some way, uh, cells will normally die. But if the damage or insufficiency is a gradual chronic problem, the cells will resort to a primitive form of energy metabolism, which is fermentation, which is the type of energy that all cells had and all organisms had before oxygen came onto the planet, which was like a billion years ago. So what these cells are doing then is essentially going back to a very primitive state of, uh, of energy metabolism, which was linked to rapid proliferation. Cells would divide rapidly and grow wildly before oxygen came onto the planet. So what these cancer cells are doing is just falling back on the type of energy metabolism that existed for all organisms before oxygen came on the planet. Right. Does that type of fermentation, type of respiration and metabolic activity, is that originating from the mitochondria or from the cell itself? No, it's not. There was no mitochondria before oxygen came on the planet. So this, this was purely a reductive activity within cells. It doesn't require uh, mitochondria. It's a purely cytoplasmic form of energy. Glucose is taken in uh, and rapidly metabolized to uh, pyruvate through cytoplasmic in the cytoplasm. And then, and then the pyruvate is reduced to lactic acid or lactate, which is called lactic acid fermentation. And this then could drive energy metabolism and the processes that can uh, emerge from this, this type of energy metabolism. But it's a very inefficient form of energy uh, generation, and it's often associated with rapid proliferation. Right. Thank you very much. So in very simple terms, it seems like basically what you're saying is as the mitochondria get damaged, they just stop functioning, and then the cell goes back to the original form of energy generation, and it's as if the mitochondria weren't there anymore. Well, it's not that they're not there. They are there, and they can also participate in certain kinds of amino acid fermentations. They, they still play a role in generating energy and uh, nutrients for the cell, but it's not through the sophisticated aspect of, of energy generation through oxidative phosphorylation. That part of their function seems to be compromised, but other parts of their function can take place, but they're not generating energy through what most cells would generate energy through, which is respiration or oxidative phosphorylation. And I also want to point out, it's not a complete shutdown of oxidative phosphorylation. Tumor cells, uh, depending on the grade, how fast they grow and how aggressive the tumor is. Uh, now, there, it is true that some very, very aggressive tumors have very few, if any, mitochondria. So these cells are primarily massive fermenters. But some tumor cells still have some residual function of their respiration, and they grow much more slowly than those tumor cells that have no function or very little function in their respiration. So it's a graded effect. But the bottom line is the cells continue to grow, but they're dysregulated. Because the mitochondria do more than just provide efficient energy. They are the regulators of the differentiated state 
of the cell. They control the entire fiber network in the cell. They control the homeostatic state of that cell. So these organelles play such an important role uh, in maintaining energy efficiency. And when they become defective, the nuclear genome turns on these oncogenes that are basically transcription factors that drive fermentation pathways. So the cells are able to survive, but they're dysregulated. Right, which becomes cancer. So in what ways are the mitochondria getting damaged? What is the context for this kind of damage that takes place today? Is this a modern phenomenon? Because obviously cancer has become a bigger and bigger target of medicine over the years, and potentially it's been growing. I'd, li I'd like to hear your kind of view on that. Is, it, is cancer something that's always been around, or is it something that affects us more today? And how is it that the mitochondria are getting damaged? Yeah, what you've said there is, is referred to as the oncogenic paradox which has been discussed by uh, Albert Sengergi, who received a Nobel Prize for his work on, on vitamin C and energy metabolism and these things, and John Carnes from England. Uh, th these people had referred to this phenomenon as called the oncogenic paradox. How is it possible that uh, so many disparate events in the environment could cause cancer through a common mechanism? And when we think of what causes cancer, we think of carcinogens, and these are chemical compounds in the environment that are known to be linked to the formation of cancer. So there, there's a whole array of these kinds of chemicals that we call carcinogens. Then there's radiation can cause cancer. Hypoxia, the blocking of oxygen into cells, can be linked to the formation of cancer. A common phenomenon, a common finding is inflammation. Chronic inflammation that uh, leads to wounds that don't heal. This is another a provocative agent for the initiation of cancer. Rare germline mutations, such as the mutations in the BRCA1 gene that a lot of people hear about because of uh, Angelina Jolie uh, bringing attention to that area. Viruses, hepatitis, hepatitis virus, uh, papillomaviruses, and there's a variety of viruses that can be linked to cancer. Age, the older people get, the greater the risk of cancer. All of these provocative agents all damage respiration. Their common link to the origin of cancer is damage to the mitochondria and damage to the, the respiratory capacity of the cell. So the paradox is solved once people realize that these disparate provocative agents work all through a common mechanism, which is da basically damage to the cellular respiration. Now, but people say, well, where, what about all the genomic mutations? What about all these mutations? Which is what is the, a major focus in the field right now is that cancer is a nuclear genetic disease. Now, what happens is the integrity of the nucleus and the genetic stability of the nucleus becomes unstable once energy from respiration becomes defective. Now, it's very interesting all of the so-called provocative agents that are known to cause cancer through damage to respiration release these toxic reactive oxygen species, which then cause nuclear genetic mutations. And this is what most people are focusing on. The nuclear genetic mutations in the tumor cells are the targets and focal point of the majority of the cancer industry. Now, when you look at the disease as a mitochondrial metabolic disease, the nuclear genetic mutations arise as secondary downstream epiphenomena of damage to the respiration. So what most people are focusing on is a downstream effect rather than the cause of the disease. You're saying that because mitochondria are damaged and energy output is damaged, that causes the cell not to lose its integrity? lose the genomic integrity. Uh, genomic yeah. integrity. Yeah. Most people you talk about, they say, oh, cancer is a genetic disease. We're trying to target all these genetic mutations. Every kind of tumor has all kinds of mutations. We need personalized therapies because the mutations are different in all the different cells and the different types of cancer. And that's true. But all of that is a downstream effect of the damage to the respiration. So people are focusing on red herrings. They're not focusing on the core issue of the problem which is destabilized energy metabolism. And this underlies the reason for why we're making so little progress in managing the disease. So I don't know if you can break it down uh, into a bit more detail. Um, like the mitochondria are made up of several parts, the outer membrane, the inner membrane, and so on. Is it certain parts or is it any part of the mitochondria that's getting damaged? 
Yeah, it's very interesting. It's, it seems to be we, we've defined the lipid abnormalities, the lipid components of the inner membrane of the mitochondria. There's a certain types of lipids that are enriched primarily in the inner membrane of the mitochondria. This lipid called cardiolipin, it's an ancient lipid that's present in bacteria and in mitochondria. But it plays a very important role in maintaining the integrity of the inner membrane, which is ultimately the origin of our respiratory energy, which is that inner membrane. And many of the proteins that participate in the electron transport chain depend uh, or are dependent on their interaction in the lipid environment in which they sit. So lipids can be changed dramatically from the environment, which then alter the function of the proteins of the electron transport chain, affecting the ability of that organelle now to generate energy. This is a real issue. And those, that inner membrane can be affected by all these uh, carcinogens, radiation, hypoxia, viruses. The viruses themselves or the products of the virus will enter into the mitochondria and take up residence, thereby altering the energy efficiency of the infected cell. And if this, most of the cells die, when you interfere with respiration, most cells die. But in some cells of our body that have the capacity to upregulate fermentation, these primitive energy pathways, they survive and they go on to become the cells of the tumor. Great, great. Thank you for that. So this is a very different theory to that which um, most people have come across, which, of course, you just outlined uh, with the DNA mutations. Which bits of research have you pulled together in your book and in your presentations that you feel like present this view of the world the most strongly? Are there, are there key research elements, researchers, uh, you know, researchers that have gone on and maybe it comes down to four pieces that you feel you know, uh, strongly support this versus the other argument? I think that's an extremely important point. What is the strongest evidence to support what I've just said? And um, what I did in my book and uh, in evaluating the therapeutic benefits that we've seen in managing cancer by targeting fermentation energy, you know, how is it possible that we overlook this information? It's very interesting. Over the last 50 years, various sporadic reports had been published in the literature showing that if the nucleus of the tumor cell is placed in a new cytoplasm, a cytoplasm that has normal uh, mitochondria, and this is cytoplasm either from a, a newly fertilized egg or an embryonic stem cell, because now we have this technology where we can do these kinds of nuclear transplantations. And this ultimately was what led to the uh, the cloning of Dolly the sheep and these kinds of, uh, of experiments. These had been done many, many years earlier in frogs and in mice before we moved on to the larger mammals and things like this. But it became clear that when the nucleus of the tumor cell was placed into the normal cytoplasm, sometimes normal cells would form and sometimes you could clone a frog or a mouse from the nucleus of the tumor cell. Now, this was quite astonishing because, you know, people were thinking you would get cancer cells because the mutations in the nucleus, if the hypothesis is correct, that this is a nuclear genetic disease and the gene drivers are in the nucleus, then how is it possible that you could generate normal tissues uh, without abnormal proliferation? In other words, normal differentiated tissues from the nucleus of a tumor cell. I was able to pull together a variety of these reports that had been sporadic in the literature over 50 years. And when these reports came out, it was considered a kind of an oddball report that didn't support the gene theory. But, you know, most, most people kind of discounted it because it was one singular report. But, you know, every four or five years, another report, eight years would go by, another kind of report. And some of these studies were done by the leaders of the field, the key developmental biologists, the best there were. These people were heavyweights in the field. And they were coming to the same conclusion, that we were not getting tumors from transplanting the cancer nucleus into a normal cytoplasm. We were cloning mice. We were cloning frogs. We were seeing normal regulated cell growth. Now, how can this happen if the nucleus is supposed to be driving the disease? So what I did was I put all these reports together in a singular group and I distilled it down to the, what the ultimate results showed. And then when you look at the whole group of papers together for the first time, 
And the conclusions are consistent from one study to the other, using totally different organisms, totally different experimental systems. The results are all the same. The nuclear mutations are not driving the cancer disease. And then if you take the normal nucleus and put it into a tumor cytoplasm, you either get uh, tumor cells or dead cells. You never get normal cells. So this was clear. It became very clear to me. And when, when people look at these kinds of observations in their group, in their totality, it's a devastating statement on the, the nature of the disease. It's not a nuclear genetic disease. It's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. And the field has not yet come to grips with this, with this new reality. So, so just on that point, quickly, if you were to predict the future, do you think that this view of cancer metabolism is going to get traction in the near future, say the five, next five years, the next 10 years? And what will it take to make that happen? Well, it's already gaining a lot of traction. People are now coming to realize that metabolism is a major aspect of cancer. But unfortunately, what the field has done, they're still linked to the gene theory. So the top papers come out and they say, oh, the abnormal metabolism in cancer cells is due to the nuclear gene mutations. Therefore, we still must be on the quest to find out what these mutations do. They have not evaluated in the depth of the information that I've presented. It becomes clear that this is not a nuclear genetic disease. So the mutations are not driving the disease. They're the effects of the abnormal metabolism. Now, there's a groundswell of, of new interest in this. Now, this opens up a totally different way to approach cancer. Once you realize it's not a nuclear genetic disease, but it's a mitochondrial metabolic disease, you have to then target those fuels that the tumor cell is using to stay alive. These amino acids and, and glucose, which can be fermented, those molecules that can be fermented through these primitive pathways now become the focal point of stopping the disease. So it becomes a much, much more manageable and approachable disease once you realize that if you take the fuel away from these tumor cells, they don't survive. They become very indolent. They stop growing. They die. And now this gives you an opportunity to come in and target and destroy these cells using more natural, non-toxic approaches. Right. If you could reinforce that a little bit, because, um, you know, as I understand it, the current approach, which is pushed the most, is to target all of the different nuclear genetic mutations and there's many many thousands of them I, like you can't really count how many there are because it, it's it's constantly developing versus with mitochondria as i understand it all mitochondria are the same so it's a completely different problem when you look at it from that perspective am i summarizing it correctly yes i think you're absolutely right i mean it's a completely different problem it now becomes a problem of energy metabolism and the nucleus becomes a secondary peripheral issue. Right. So in fact, it becomes much simpler because you're targeting oh, the uh, same oh, problem versus thousands of different problems. Absolutely. And, and therapies, you know, as today we're developing thousands of hundreds of different drugs to target different types of cancer. Yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, and the issue is every single cell in the tumor suffers from the same metabolic problem. But mm. every single cell in the tumor has a totally different genetic entity. And we're focusing on the very different aspects of every cell rather than the common aspects of every cell. The problem becomes a much more solvable problem once you target the commonality, the common defect expressed in all cells, rather than the defects that are expressed in only a few of the cells. It makes You would not do that until you came to the realization and saw the data that this is a disease of energy metabolism, not nuclear genetic defects. It's a totally different way of viewing the disease. Right. Thank you. Thank you. This may be kind of off, off subject for you. Uh, let me know if it is. But I understand it. There's also more and more people are starting to link other types of diseases, say multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and some of the other chronic diseases that we have and are not very solvable today to mitochondrial disease. So I'm wondering if in any way you link that to uh, the, the same origin of cancer here that we're discussing. Well, those diseases, that's true. There are mitochondrial abnormalities in Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, uh, epilepsy, and their uh, type 2 diabetes. I mean, you, you can go right down the list and, and find a, a mitochondrial connection to a lot of these different diseases. But the mitochondria can be damaged and insufficient and influenced in many different kinds of ways. So only cells that can uh, upregulate, significantly upregulate fermentation can go on to form tumor cells. But many of our cells are not killed outright and they struggle. For example, the brain. We rarely get uh, tumors of the neurons in the brain because if you damage the respiration of the neuron, the neuron will die. 
Many of the tumors in the brain come from the glial cells. These are the uh, are supportive cells of the brain. They play an extremely important role in the homeostasis of brain function. But those cells have a greater capacity to ferment than do the neurons. So when mitochondria are damaged in neurons, the neurons usually die. They, you can never get a tumor cell from a dead cell. Now, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, these are situations where populations of neurons die from reactive oxygen species. So these, these reactive oxygen species, which are produced by inefficient mitochondria, kill the cell. And the cells never form tumors, they just die. So you have populations of cells in the substantia nigra in Parkinson's disease or in the hippocampus in Alzheimer's disease where the neurons are dying. And, and they're dying from mitochondrial energy inefficiencies. And uh, the idea then is, is can we enhance neuronal function by using therapies that will strengthen mitochondrial function? And the answer is yes. And this is why these ketogenic diets are showing therapeutic benefit for a variety of different ailments, a very broad range of ailments. But the diets and these approaches, what we call therapeutic ketosis, can enhance mitochondrial function for some conditions and can kill tumor cells in other conditions. So one now has to appreciate a new approach to managing a variety of diseases that may have a linkage through uh, inefficient mitochondrial metabolism. Could you talk about, we're kind of getting into treatment here a little bit now, based on your theory. There's a difference between ketone or, or like fat versus glucose metabolism in the mitochondria. And you were just talking about efficiencies. Could you go over that? What is the difference there? What, why is it that uh, glucose metabolism is different to that of fats or and the production of ketones? Yeah, well, we can burn, the body is very flexible. It can burn energy from carbohydrates, which is glucose, or it can burn energy from fatty acids, uh, or it can burn energy from ketones. And uh, we evolved as a species to survive for considerable periods of time without food. And it's amazing how people don't understand this. They think if they don't eat food in a week or less, they're going to drop dead. This is uh, nonsense. Uh, we evolved as a species to function for long periods of time. As long as we have adequate uh, fluids, water, the human body can sustain functionality for extended periods of time without eating. Now, you say to yourself, well, where are we getting our energy? We evolved to store energy in the form of triglycerides, which are fat. And all of many of our organs store fats to various degree, and we have fat cells that store fat. Now, when we stop eating, the fats are mobilized out of these storage vacuoles in the, in the cells, and the fats go to the liver, and our liver breaks these fats down like a wood chipper to these small little ketone bodies, which now circulate through the bloodstream, and they, serve, they can serve as an alternative fuel to glucose. So we can sustain, because the brain has a huge demand for glucose, but the human brain can transition to these fat breakdown products called ketone bodies. So this all comes from storage fat, and our brains can get uh, tremendous energy from these ketones. The energy in food comes from hydrogen-carbon bonds that were produced during the production of the foods, ultimately from plants and the sunlight. But the energy in the bonds is ultimately derived from the energy of the sun. Now, our bodies break down these bonds and recapture those, that, that energy. What we're doing then is just recapturing this energy. Now, ketone bodies, when they're burned in cells, they have a higher uh, number of carbon-oxygen bonds. They produce more intrinsic energy than does a glucose molecule, which is broken down to pyruvate, which is a glucose breakdown product. And when ketones are, are metabolized, they produce fewer of these reactive oxygen species. They work on the coenzyme Q couple within the mitochondria to produce clean energy, energy without breakdown products. It's a very, a very efficient form of energy. Right. I like that analogy there because people could relate to how we had lead gas before and we cleaned that up a bit and now we've got less waste products in the environment. So yeah. it's, it's a little bit it's, similar. It's the same thing. I mean, our bodies are so super energy efficient when we begin to force them into a situation where now for the, in the past, this was done all the time because in the past, the humans almost uh, were extinct on a number of geological epochs for the ice ages, lacks of food and all. I mean, we have a very energy efficient machine in our bodies that can generate this energy from within, clean, powerful, efficient energy that allows us to sustain our mental and physiological functions for extended periods of time. And this comes from the genome. Our genome 
has a remembrance and a knowledge to do this. It, it, it evolved over millions of years to do this. The problem today is that this capability is suppressed by the large amounts of high-energy foods that are in our environment. And what happens, this then creates inflammation in the kinds of conditions that allow uh, inefficiencies and eventually inflammation and, and the onset of cancer. So returning to the more primitive states allows our bodies to reheal themselves. And as I said, here's the issue. The nuclear genetic mutations that collect in these cancer cells prevent those cells from making the adaptations to these food-restricted conditions. So that because the mutations are there, the cells are no longer flexible. They can't move from one energy state to the other like the normal cells can, which have integrated genomes. So the mutations can be used to kill these tumor cells, but by forcing the body into these different energy states in a non-toxic way. It's not necessary to have to poison people, nuke people, surgically mutilate people to make them healthy. Uh, there's natural ways we can do this if we understand the differences in metabolism between normal cells and cancer cells. So from your perspective, anything that would help to repair mitochondria, would that be helpful against cancer? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're not going to get cancer in cells that have very healthy mitochondria. If mitochondrial damage is the origin of cancer and the cells have very high efficient mitochondria, it's very unlikely the risk of developing cancer in those situations is remarkably low. So cancer would be like there are groups of people that we have in the United States, the Calorie Restriction Society of America. It exists in other areas throughout the world. These people have a very low incidence of cancer. They're in a constant state of ketosis, and the incidence of cancer in these people is very, very low. Now, I have to admit, this is not an easy lifestyle. People don't want to be restricting themselves all the time and, and doing this stuff, you know. And this is the issue. We live in a society, in an industrialized society, where the environment itself, we've come a long way to create an environment that is free of, of the massive kinds of starvations and, and these things that existed in the past. So it's hard to take your body and go back into these primitive states to do this kind of thing. Great. So here's a really a, a big focus in what you've been saying on reactive oxygen species, which is kind of like the mini explosion that takes place inside a car when it's running. And I think people can relate to the fact that all engines are causing damage while they're running because they're producing heat and so on. So with the mitochondria, it's basically the same. And you're saying that when we're on a ketogenic diet or we're fasting and we're producing this more efficient type of fuel and it reduces RRS, it's causing less damage. And it's an important type of the damage that is caused to mitochondria. And this is why eventually it helps with the status of the mitochondria to heal them and repair them. Um, or to limit the uh, additional damage that goes on, which would help to promote the cancer. Is that a good summary, or have I got some things wrong there? It's a very close analogy. I, I would say that this is exactly what it is. We damage our body by the kinds of foods we eat, the kinds of environments we're exposed to, and the mitochondria and the certain cells you know, just get damaged, and, and, and these cells then revert back to a more primitive form of energy, which is fermentation, which then leads to a total dysregulation of the growth of the cell, collects these mutations... Uh, that come as a secondary downstream epiphenomena of this. And the thing of it is, is, you know, how do you target and eliminate those kinds of cells? And cancer, people must realize this is a systemic disease rather than a focal disease. Why people say, oh, what does he study? Is the liver cancer, breast cancer? These cancers are all the same. They're metabolically all the same. You need to treat cancer in a singular, global, systemic way. And this then will marginalize and reduce the growth of these cells. And you have to be able to do it non-toxically. And these uh, ketogenic diets or therapeutic ketosis is just one way to enhance the overall health and well-being of the body while targeting and eliminating these inefficient cells. And this can be done if people do it the right way. Great, great. Thank you very much. So based on this theory, what kind of biomarkers would give us insights into someone's potential to develop cancer? Right, like Because today we look at 23andMe data, for example, genetics, to kind of assess our risks of future cancer. Like, for instance, on mine, it says, like, my highest potential cancer is lung cancer. And that's pretty much the only markers that we're given. Are there markers related to mitochondrial function or damage that you would feel that would be relevant to estimating a future potential risk of cancer? Yeah, well, I think one of the risks of cancer is high blood sugar, blood glucose levels. 
I mean, this creates systemic inflammation, which underlies a lot of the so-called chronic diseases that we have, including heart disease and type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and cancer. I mean, these are just, you know, these are, these are the predominant numbers of chronic diseases that we're confronted with. So if we know that high blood sugar is a provocative agent that increases the risk for cancer, then you know, lower, making sure your blood sugar levels are low. And the other thing, too, is elevation of ketones. So we developed a, what they call a glucose ketone index that can be used for people to prevent cancer as well as managing the disease. So if the glucose ketone index, which we have defined as the ratio between the concentration of glucose in the blood to the concentration of ketone bodies in the blood, if this index can be as maintained as close to 1, 1 1.0 or below, the body is in a very high state of therapeutic energy efficiency, which is then going to reduce the risk for all of these different kinds of chronic diseases. So, and if you look at most people with chronic disease, their index is about uh, 50 or 100 rather than one or below one. We've just developed this and we're working on a paper. It's called the Glucose Ketone Index. It was designed basically for uh, managing cancer because patients who have cancer, if they want to know what these therapies are doing, what these therapies, how they're working, you look at your index. Now, people who don't have cancer who would like to do something to reduce their risk, they would do the same thing. And people would say, you know, you know what's your index today? Well, say my index is 1.2. You're in a very good state of health. And if most people, I can guarantee you, I, you know, people who eat regular foods, their indexes are about 60 or 70, not 1.2 below. Because what you do is when you have a lot of carbohydrate in your bloodstream, uh, ketones are very, very low. They're, they're like 0 0.2, 0 0.1. And your blood sugar is um, five or, or four or five millimolar, and your blood ketones are 0.1 millimolar. Well, what do you think your index is going to be? It's going to be huge. But then if you increase your ketones, you divide. If you can bring the ketone bodies up to the same level as glucose, you're going to have a 1.0. Mm. Is this sensitive enough to manage potential you made a very clear scenario of 60, you know, where that's a very, a very dangerous situation to be in. No, no, no. I, I don't want to say it's dangerous. Mm. I, I want to say it's the norm. Oh, okay. All right. Great. It's, it's not dangerous. When you take somebody who has type 2 diabetes and his blood ketones are up at about, or a correction, his blood sugar is like 300 milligrams per deciliter, and you have to divide that by the, the number 18 to bring it down to millimolar, and his ketones are, you know, you can't even measure them. I mean, these guys are in inflamed. Their body is in an inflamed state. And inflammation will cause all kinds of effects. So you want to bring people down. How, how do you get these low numbers? Well, you can either go on these calorie-restricted ketogenic diets, or you can do therapeutic fasting, which is water-only fasting for several days. You'll bring those numbers right down. You'll get into an extremely healthy state because the ketones go up naturally when you don't eat, and blood sugar goes down naturally when you don't eat. So then you enter the, into these states. It's called therapeutic ketosis. But it, the problem is it's, not, it's very, very difficult for most people in our society to do this because our brains are addicted to glucose. I mean, you take somebody who stopped eating for 24 or 36 hours, this guy thinks he's going to go crazy. So it's almost like trying to break addictions to cigarettes, alcohol, drugs. It's not easy. It's very, very difficult to break the glucose addiction. Absolutely. It takes a little bit of time to change your metabolism. Yeah. Um, so we spoke to uh, Jimmy Moore before. I don't know if you connected with him before and his book. Yeah, I know Jimmy. Right, right. So we, we spoke about some of the different ways to measure ketones. Uh, so we had the blood test, the blood, the prick tests with the precision, which is a little bit expensive today. And you have the breath test, uh, the ketonics, which is just kind of come out. With that index, are you using the blood prick test or are you using maybe blood labs or, or something a bit more complicated? Now, there, there's a couple of companies that use the... Uh, the blood test is the most accurate. Uh, it's more accurate than the breath blowing into a, a ketosis meter or you're doing urine sticks. So the most, the most important measure, of course, is blood. So you have to take a blood stick and you have to take the, there's only a few meters that can do both ketones and glucose using the same meter. You have to use different uh, stick. There's a ketone stick and a glucose stick. So from the same drop of blood, you can get your blood sugar uh, and then you can put a new stick into the machine, uh, which is a ketone stick, and then you can take the same drop of blood and get your ketones. Now, what we did was we developed a calculator so that all the person would have to do is to push the button on the meter, and it would calculate already your glucose ketone index. This would give you a singular number from a drop of blood. So if you developed your own device, you're saying, which does that calculation? We developed a calculation. It's called the ketone index calculator. Uh -huh. and, and because, you know, you have to convert everything back to millimolar 
because most many of the ketone meters give you blood sugar in milligrams per deciliter and ketones in millimolar. So we have to convert. You can do all this by hand. You just have to do the divisions and all this stuff. But So you've got an online calculator where people can put their values in and it will give them the index? Well, we don't have that yet. What we did was develop the calculator that could be incorporated into these meters. Ah, I see. This is the thing. So people, regardless of whether you're a cancer patient and you want to manage your disease or you're a person who wants to prevent cancer or you're an athlete who wants to know what his physiological status is, or you're someone who wants to lose weight. All of these issues, you can get a sense, a good solid biomarker sense, by looking at your glucose ketone index. And you can, everybody can do that from these meters that, that are capable. But the meters right now are not designed to give you glucose ketone indexes. And this is what we're saying. It's the index that will tell you your overall status, your health status. Right. So I imagine right now you're approaching the providers of these tools to see if they can incorporate this calculation into their devices? Yes, exactly. They don't have it yet. They're not even aware yet of the potential market or interest among the general population, uh, not only for people that are afflicted with various diseases, but people who are healthy and don't want to get those diseases. So, um, I mean, this is a very simple tool. The only drawback from it is you have to stick your finger with a little prick to get a, to get a little bit of a drop of blood. But the people with, with uh, type 1 diabetes do this regularly. I mean, this is not an issue. But for those people who, who are into this and they want to do it the right way and they want to get accurate biomarker measurements, then, then they would do this for those people who are interested in this. this is a, it's invasive in the sense that you have to prick your finger to get a drop of blood. But it's not invasive in the sense that you, you know, you have to do some take tissue samples or any of this kind of thing. And so this is something that people could do on an ongoing basis. Like, so I'm guessing for someone with cancer, I don't know if this would be something that you would say they'd probably want to look at daily or every, every few days or something like that. And someone else, maybe it's just something they need to do at a lot less intensive, intensive routine in terms to just kind of monitor the levels of their general ketogenesis. Yes, you're absolutely right about this. People who are trying to manage their disease uh, thoroughly uh, might want to do this uh, maybe once or twice a day. Just like someone who might have type 1 diabetes, they, you know, they measure their blood sugar several times a day. The issue right now is measure, the glucose strips are relatively cheap. They're like, you know, 50 cents a piece, but the ketone strips are much more expensive. They can range from anywhere for, from $2 to $5 a stick. Do you know if that's due to economies of scale or if it, yes. right, so it's simply because not enough people are using them yet? Yes, it's, a, it's an economy of scale, absolutely, because very few people measure their ketone levels. But now linking those ketones to your overall general health, a lot of people would be interested in this. And people in general like numbers. They want to know, and especially a number, a singular number that would dictate your state of health. If you can say to somebody, listen, you know, my index is between 1.1 and, and 0.9, people would automatically know this guy is in a tremendous state of health. People like to know that. And you say, where's your number? And you have, you know, people like to keep logbooks. They like to record these numbers. And they also link this to a, a greater sense of, of well-being. People who have their numbers down in these ranges, they tell me, and I've done it, you know, some people get into a state of euphoria. It's like unbelievable when your body starts burning these ketones. It's like you, you enter a new, a new physiological state and uh, athletes are doing this sometimes. And so it's a whole new realm of how to monitor your own health with accurate biomarkers uh, that give you an indication of, of your health status. So do you follow a similar prescription to Jimmy Moore? I, I, I believe you understand his, his approach where he's eating a high fat diet or um, sometimes he's fasting, kind of like intermittent fasting, which has become pretty popular these days. Well, intermittent fasting is from what we've seen in, in our work. You don't get uh, the health benefits, the power of the health benefit until you've gone three to four days without any food, just drinking water. And then those who can go a week, one seven, like a seven day period. This is where you really start to see your blood sugars going down and your ketones going up. But once you can get into this zone, we call it the zone of therapeutic management, where you're, now you know you're in the zone. Uh, this is where that, the health really comes in. And when you say periodic fasting, now there's a lot of people that I know, numbers of people who, who have a rather restrictive diet for the week, and then one day a week they'll, they'll not eat anything. So it's one day off on food, like a 24-hour period where they'll just have maybe a green tea, no calories, or just pure water. Some of the intermittent fasting regimes propose that that approach, a 24-hour fast, you know, every two days or something. Yeah, but then you've got to know, okay, what did that do to my index? 
how effective was the 24-hour fast on my index? And you look down and you say, well, you know, I didn't get my ketones up very far. They went from 0.1 to, say, 0.5. Okay, but if I go four or five days, it goes from 0.1 to 3.0. Oh, wow, this is the magnitude difference. Yeah. So if you looked at different people, because when we were talking to Jimmy, he was saying that different people have different responses. It's based on their current state of metabolism. You know, they'll have to be kind of more extreme in their approach to get the same level of ketones. And, and I, I imagine the same impact on an index, depending on how potentially how damaged their mitochondria are. I don't know how you look at it. Yeah, no, no, that's a really important point. It's, it's certain people. It's also certain sexes. The women can get into these ketone states much easier than men. We tried it a lot of, and young people can get into the, these zones much, much easier than can older people. So it's an age issue. It's a gender issue. We've seen some of our students get down their blood sugars down into the low 30s, which people would say would be a crisis situation. You have to go to the hospital. But their ketones are elevated. And when the ketones are elevated, you have no crisis situation. It's only when you lower blood sugar and don't elevate ketones that you have this situation. Males have a lot more muscle. They tend to burn uh, protein, which can be converted to glucose. So their blood glucoses don't go down as sharply as women. The blood glucose of, of females go down. Females can get their blood sugars down and their ketones elevated from all the data that we've seen for several years on different gender. I mean, this is what we see. And older people are simply uh, locked into a much longer lifestyle of high glucose. And for them to get their blood sugar down, it's a real struggle. And also their muscle mass over the age, they have a lot of, a lot of other issues that play into this whole thing. And you're absolutely right. It's an individual thing. Some people can't tolerate this. Uh, they get really sick, they get lightheaded, where other people make the adaptations much more quickly. So again, people have to know their own physiology, but they have to have the biomarkers that let them know. They need to see these numbers, and once they see these numbers, they'll know that they're on the right path, and they probably can do this if they persist a little bit longer, rather than throwing their hands up, not knowing what's going on, being very frustrated. And as I said, once you have this, this information and knowledge, that these kinds of things become much easier. Yeah. Well, it definitely helps with your confidence in something. If you can see that it, maybe you don't feel better or you don't feel a difference yet, but if you see the number slot starting to move, then it, it gives you that sense of accountability and motivation also. I mean, I think that's one of the very helpful aspects of these kind of indexes that you're talking about. Absolutely. This is a very important point. You're absolutely right about this because this gives you, you're right. When you see that you're killing yourself and nothing's happening or you don't feel, but yet when you see numbers starting to change in the direction, you know your hard work is starting to pay off. And then you get motivated and you want to see then how far you can push these numbers. Now, this is not going to hurt anybody. You're just lowering blood sugar and elevating ketones and your body gets into a new state of health and people feel it. Believe me, you can feel this stuff happening, but there's a rocky road uh, going from the high glucose state to the high ketone state. And that rocky road can be, can be more rocky for some than others. <laughs> Absolutely. So there are other aspects to mitochondrial health that certain people are looking at the moment. I don't know if you've come across any of these, but I thought I'd just throw them out in, key, in case you had some comments on them. Like some people are talking about mitochondrial repair in terms of repairing the membranes with uh, specific lipids by providing those lipids to basically help reinforce the mitochondria. Other people talk about things like PQQ to help stimulate biogenesis of new mitochondria. I don't know if you've heard about these things or have any ideas or opinions on them? Well, in my book, I called it autolytic cannibalism. And this is basically the mitochondria can either be rescued, enhanced, or consumed through an autophagy mechanism. And uh, when you stop eating, now the, the, every cell in the body must operate at its maximal energy efficiency. And that means that the mitochondria in those cells must be operational at their highest level of, of energy, energetic efficiency. Otherwise, the cell will die and the molecules of that cell will be consumed and redistributed to the rest of the body. Now, in cells that have some mitochondria effective and, or more efficient than other mitochondria within the cell, the same cell, the inefficient mitochondria can be incorporated into the lysosome. The parts of that mitochondria can then be redistributed to the healthy mitochondria within the cell. And this way, you, you eliminate internal energy inefficiencies, but without having to kill the cell because the cell is able to repair itself. Whereas those cells that can't repair themselves are, die and their molecules are then consumed by macrophages, excreted back into the bloodstream, and the nutrients now are used to support the health and vitality of those cells in the body that have this higher energy efficiency. It's a remarkable state 
of efficiency. So it works both with individual cells and throughout the whole entire physiological system. Great, great. Thank you. Is there any way, I'm just thinking, you've spoken about lactate fermentation versus respiration. Is there any way to measure that, that you know of? Is that being done in studies? Some of the studies coming out are comparing the kind of state of fermentation versus respiration taking place in people's bodies and correlating that to cancers or anything like that? Yeah, that's kind of hard to do because you have a lot of lactate in it. We all have lactate in our bloodstream. And the lactate comes from erythrocytes, the, our blood cells. The blood cells have a, have a shorter half-life than many of the other cells in our bodies. And those cells have no mitochondria. They have no nucleus. So they're little cytoplasms that primarily ferment. But they, they don't use a lot of energy because the role of that cell is simply to exchange gases. So it floats around in our tissues. It, it deposits its oxygen and picks up CO2. And it's more or less a, a little uh, like a mailman running around, picking up this and dropping that off. And uh, they have a, a shorter half-life, but they have lactate. Now, if you have a tumor or if you're under a hypoxic stress, lactic acid will go up in your bloodstream. But it's hard to know if a tumor will do that. Now, what, sometimes what tumors do, they have a phenomenon called cachexia. And this is where uh, the tumor cells will send out molecules that will digest proteins or dissolve protein in our muscles and other proteins. And these proteins then go to the liver and are broken down into amino acids, and the amino acids are conjugated into glucose. So the glucose goes now into the tumor cell, and some of the proteins in the amino acids go to the tumor cell after being broke down. So the tumor is, is essentially causing our body to starve to death. We might be eating, but it looks like we're not gaining any weight, and we're becoming uh, moribund and looking like we're starving to death. This is an effect of the tumor. And sometimes you don't see that. Sometimes lactic acid will go up and sometimes it won't. So there's a lot of ambiguity of looking at a good biomarker to, to assess the state of what level of tumor growth you might have, other than the fact that you're losing weight even though you're eating, which is the cachectic state. You're kind of wasting from within. This is the whole thing. And this is one of the fears that the medical profession has with cancer patients because they say, oh, these poor people are losing weight uh, through this cachectic mechanism, and then you come along with a metabolic therapy, and they say, oh, this can't work. But the issue, of course, is that there's two types of weight loss. One is a pathological weight loss, and the other is therapeutic weight loss. Pathological weight loss is cachexia, and of course, if you're treated with toxic chemicals and radiation, you get so sick with fatigue, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. I mean, this is pathological weight loss. Therapeutic weight loss is you're losing weight, but your body is getting extremely healthy and killing cancer cells at the same time. So weight loss can come in two different varieties, pathological and therapeutic. And people have a tremendous difficulty in understanding the differences between these kinds of weight loss. And I think we've mentioned on the podcast before that uh, when people are fasting in this state, they actually feel better, even if they have, for instance, chemotherapy. They tend to do better in chemotherapy when they have been fasting. Yes, because it reduces inflammation. We've published a number of papers showing how fasting, therapeutic fasting, reduces systemic inflammation. Systemic inflammation contributes to a pathological state and facilitates tumor growth. So therapeutic fasting, while at the same time you're taking a toxic drug, it's like, you know, what are you doing here? But it does take the sting out of that toxic drug. People, people feel better uh, when they're therapeutically fasting. I think Longo's group out at U University of Southern California has clearly shown that some of these uh, cancer patients can do a lot better uh, and feel better when they're fasting while they're taking chemotherapy. But you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Thank you so much for this overview, Thomas. I wanted to ask you just a few more questions to round off now. What do you think will happen in the next five or 10 years or hope? Uh, what was your vision for this area in terms of biomarkers, like testing devices or, or change in the way we approach this? Uh, do you think there's specific opportunities ahead? Are there specific questions you're looking at at the moment to resolve in research or, or so on? Yeah, well, I think the people themselves are demanding uh, a change. The issue is that they haven't been shown other alternatives other than the standards of care, which are conducted by the, the major medical schools, Dana-Farber Cancer Center, MD Anderson, Johns Hopkins, Yale Cancer Centers, uh, Sloan Kettering, UCSF. I mean, the major industries of cancer and academics are closely aligned in how to do this, and it's not working. We're having uh, about 1,600 1, people a day are dying from cancer in this country. And the statistics in other countries in Europe and China and Japan are not far off of this. 
And if we had Ebola outbreak in this country where 1,600 people are dead, were dying a day, this would be of the greatest catastrophe that people can imagine. But for cancer, it seems to be okay. I mean, this is the norm. Well, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. And the issue here is, is that the people see that we have more and more survivors and people doing pretty well on these metabolic therapies. Why are we not doing this more as a more of a general uh, treatment as opposed to these toxic approaches to manage the disease? So I think the change will come from the grassroots. I don't see it coming from the top medical schools because these people are not trained. Their medical education doesn't give them the training to identify these approaches to therapy. It's not part of the medical training. So we're do there are a number of physicians that are recognizing this now, and they want to become part of this new approach to cancer management. Now, you have to realize that we're just beginning. This is just a new field. It's a beginning field. Even though the, the science is well, well established, the implementation of this science for patient health is just, we're just at the beginning. It can be refined. It can be modified. A lot of this now we're talking about, the potential for managing cancer in a non-toxic way with greater therapeutic efficacy is just beginning. So I think that we need more trained people. We have to have people that understand this. Eventually, these kinds of approaches will be more and more recognized and more and more implemented. And I think the, the overall society. The problem is people have not yet been, be, have found a way to make a large profit on this kind of an approach as, as you can with certain drugs and immunotherapies and these kinds of things. But uh, that will probably come in time once people understand, you know, what the best uh, approaches and techniques are. And another aspect I wanted is uh, there's more research being undertaken on mitochondria over time. Do you think that will help in any way? Yeah, I think it will help a lot. Like you said, you know, with the lipids, and we're looking into this ourselves, I think there's ways that we can enhance mitochondrial energy efficiency through various diets and supplements and things like this. And there will be in real quantitative measures that, that can assess this for people to recognize, you know, what works and what doesn't. So I, I think it's just that it's an area that has been not well appreciated and not well recognized. And as long as people think that cancer is a nuclear genetic disease, the focus on the mitochondria hasn't been there. I mean, people have, have known the importance of mitochondria, and it's been a very major area of scientific research, but it's not recognized as the solution to the problem. It's kind of a side effect. But we're looking at it as understanding mitochondrial function and its interaction with the nucleus and other parts of the cell. Uh, to maintain a healthy cell, a healthy society of cells, and a healthy overall physiology, all linked to the mitochondrial energy metabolism. I mean, this is now, this is going to be a very exciting uh, new development. Yeah, I, I agree. There's not a day that goes past I don't think about mitochondria these days and hear someone talk about it. Um, it happens a lot on this show also. If someone wants to learn more about your work, um, the, the, this theory of cancer and the index you were talking about, where, where should they go? Well, I wrote the book on cancer as a metabolic disease on the uh, origin management and prevention of the disease. That's uh, published by John Wiley Press. Unfortunately, it's a science book and it's not cheap like you'd find most of the, the Amazon books. But it, it gives you the literature, it gives you the science, it gives you the, the hard evidence to support everything that I've said. Another book that's just appeared is uh, Tripping Over the Truth, uh, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer by Travis Christofferson who's written a book um, for the layperson, where he actually read my book and went back to test, to test all the things that I was saying and actually talking and visiting and interviewing those scientists who work in the gene theory and work in the metabolic theory and, and get the word directly from them. It reads like a novel, and it's much less, I don't know, scientifically intimidating than what I wrote. I, I mean, I wrote this book to convince my peers and people in the cancer and scientific field, the evidence that supports what I'm saying. And this sometimes can be intimidating to the layperson. Whereas as Travis went out and actually interviewed those scientists and asked them the specific questions. And it, now it looks like, you know, now it becomes a very intriguing story. I mean, how did all this get so, how did this cancer thing get so far out of whack uh, with what we know about the, people like to see this and read it. So that is another book uh, that's generating it. If you go on Amazon, you'll see the reviews. They're all quite outstanding for Travis's book. And I have been privy to a number of other books that'll be coming out over the next year, which are harping on the same general theme, that cancer is a metabolic disease and, and, and it can be beaten by metabolic solutions. 
uh, totally different than what's been going on in the in the main focus. And and this is kind of shocking because you know you go to the, the top cancer centers and they don't speak anything about this. They're still talking about the standards of care as they have been done, or they're talking about immunotherapies, which is the new buzzword for the cancer field, where you're going to take these, uh, identify all the mutations, and then make antibodies to the defective proteins, and then treat people. And they show a few survivors on the cover of the Wall Street Journal or some other saying how wonderful this works, but they don't show you the, the other uh, evidence showing how many people are dying from this. All of this will change because the people in the, in the society, the public is going to be fed up with the lack of progress. And what we have is a hard, a new way to approach this problem based on, on solid scientific fact. It's just that these facts are not well understood or recognized at this point. Great. Thank you very much. And um, we'll put all of this in the show notes so people will find uh, these links uh, easy. Also, the index you spoke about, I'm guessing there's, there's nothing really kind of published about that. If people go to your website, will in the future, will you have something on there which will talk about that in more detail? Or Yeah, we have a paper that's under review right now. We, we've submitted a paper for the index, and we're in the process of making some revisions on the index. And the index was, in this paper, was mostly focused on managing brain cancer. But uh, we also uh, noted that this index could have a broad applicability to a whole range of, uh, of different diseases. And in the Journal of Lipid Research, which is the top journal in the field of lipid biochemistry, I edited uh, one of the issues that was entitled Ketone Strong Emerging Evidence for the Role of Ketones and Calorie Restriction for the Management of a Broad Range of Diseases. So uh, more and more scientists are getting involved in this and uh, more and more information will be coming out, both in the professional scientific journals as well as in the public interest articles in journals and magazines and, and radio shows. And, and uh, more and more people will be coming to know this. And I think the field is going to have to uh, deal with it. And I think in the long run, we'll emerge into a new uh, way to manage these chronic diseases with a lot less toxicity and greater efficacy. Great, great. Thank you. Now, just two more questions, personal questions for you. Uh, what data metrics do you track for your own body on a routine basis, if any? Well, basically, I try to get on a scale and see how much I weigh. Obviously, if you can keep your body weight at a stable level for a period of time, you know, this is certainly, you know, one way to maintain homeostasis. I've done the three-day fast. When, as I said, you know, when you're older like myself, it's very uncomfortable, but it's certainly doable. It's like training exercise. I mean, you'd have to do it probably a couple of times a year to get into the, into the state. And I think every time you do this, you become more confident in your ability to do it again. There is, there is a state of uncertainty and discomfort, and like, oh, my God, I'm not eating any food. <clears throat> you know, how can I go? And I feel uncomfortable and I'm a little lightheaded. And you try to drink water. Uh, to say, maybe I can fill my stomach up with water and I won't feel as hungry. And, and then you start getting water intoxication. And eventually you realize that, you know, you really don't need to drink a lot of water and you just have to bite the bullet. But as I said, as, as we begin to do this, we realize that it's not so life-threatening as everybody would think it would be. And so I think, you know, we try, I try to do that. But as I said to a lot of people, they say, oh, you must do this all the time. No, I don't do it all the time. But if I had cancer, I know exactly what I would do. What would you do? Just to speak it out clearly here. Yeah. I would stop eating. <laughs> first, Completely. <laughs> I'd get my index down below one, that's for sure. And then I would transition off to these high-fat, nutritious kinds of diets, ketogenic diets, and maintain my index. And then, of course, we're investigating. It's very hard to get funds to do this kind of stuff, too, because it's, it's not considered sexy science. What is the best uh, combinatorial therapy that would work with therapeutic fasting and ketogenic diets that would uh, put the greatest amount of pressure and most of it has to do with uh, what kind of non-toxic drugs would you dovetail in with therapeutic fasting and ketogenic diets? And like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, 2-deoxyglucose, 3-bromopyruvate, uh, oxaloacetate. I mean, we can go down these lists. Most of these are non-patentable drugs, but they have tremendous power when used together with these other therapies. And most of this stuff is just trying to figure out the dosages, the timing, these kinds of issues. And then it's just like perfecting perfecting the engine. How did the car engine become so efficient today from the way it was in 1900? Right. So the things you just mentioned, either stress the cancer cells specifically. Yeah. Like a hyperbaric oxygen. Yes. Or they support the mitochondria. Oxaloacetate, right? 
Yes, exactly. What you're doing is you're enhancing mitochondrial function in normal cells and you're putting maximal metabolic stress on the tumor cells. It's just turning the normal. For the first time, we're using our normal cells to directly combat and battle the cancer cells while enhancing their health and efficiency. So for someone who has, say we do a 23 me test, like a lot of people on this podcast do their 23 me test and it comes out with some DNA and it says maybe you have like a pretty high chance of cancer in your lifetime and it could be a lung cancer or whatever. I mean, lung cancer is not a good one because often it's, often it's smoking. So one of the other more general ones like breast cancer, what would you basically say that they should be, say, I don't know, fasting once per month for three days or twice per year for seven days and maybe looking at those therapies you just outlined? Yeah. Uh, People who have the Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, which is an inherited germline mutation in the, the gene for P53, which encodes a protein in the electron transport chain, or BRCA1, product of the, of the BRCA1 gene, has been found in mitochondria. You know, we look at a number of the so-called genes, inherited genes, that increase your risk for cancer. But as I told you, all, everything passes through the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the origin of the disease. So the inherited mutations simply make that organelle slightly less efficient in certain cells of our body. Not all cells, but only certain cells, like the breast, the uterine, or these kinds of things. And we know that there are people, like if you inherit the BRCA1 mutation, your risk of cancer goes up, the risk goes up significantly. But not everybody who has a BRCA1 mutation develops cancer. So clearly, the environment can play a huge role in determining whether that gene will be expressed or not. Yeah, I mean, you can do prophylactic removal of organs and things like this to reduce your risk, but it would be just as effective in my mind to transition the body to a metabolic state that would minimize the problem of, of that gene influencing the mitochondrial function. It seems a, a lot less draconian than, than doing these massive surgical mutilations. Or you can do both. The idea is some of these, uh, some of these inherited mutations they might have a preferred organ, like a breast or a uterus or, uh, or ovary, but you know, you're not going to remove all your organs. I mean, you're not going to remove brain. And, uh, I mean, you're at a higher risk. So what can you do to lower your risk? And as I said, if you keep your mitochondrial healthy, the, the risk is going to be significantly reduced. So people need to know this so that they can make choices that would be best suitable for them. Thank you so much for all your information today. This is really an uh, information-packed episode. It's got this great new take on cancer, which I think is very positive because it's talking about something which people can have more control about. So it's not just that this is a new approach and the old approach has been struggling for quite a while and it's become very expensive and so on with not so much success, but also that this is an approach which is within people's own managed sphere of management and a lot easier to start having an impact on their own lives. So it's very positive from that perspective also yeah i agree absolutely to get more of the quantified body subscribe on itunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net that's t-h-e-q-u-a-n-t-i-f-i-e-d-b-o-d-y dot n-e-t you can also follow us on twitter and facebook on twitter we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody and on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantified body podcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.